You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 45. Hello again, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, still coming to you from the not-yet-finished environs of my new recording studio in Wisconsin. Hopefully by next week I'll have this acoustic situation sorted out. Until then, thank you for your patience. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, fresh off the writing desk. So, without further ado, let's move on to the story section for this week. This week I'm bringing you the second half of Chapter 10 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If this is your first time listening to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 24 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City police detectives Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf have found themselves caught in a tangled web of secrets, lies, magic, and death. A group of young nobles has come back to the city after an ill-fated joyride into the mysterious Telvari Rift Zone, where they were all exposed to a surge of life-aspected mana. Not only did this mana radiation twist and mutate their bodies, but at least some of them have become possessed by magical symbionts that lived at the rift and fed on its arcane energies. Now trapped in a strange place, thousands of miles from home, these symbionts are slowly starving to death, and in the process, they are eating their hosts from the inside out. Bernard Travers, the shuttle pilot who flew the nobles into the inner rift zone, was the first person to die from this possession, and in the process he drew the attention of the Lothanasi Order. Now, the symbionts have claimed a second victim. Kate and David returned to Kate's apartment building, where they were summoned to a vacant studio by her landlady, the succubus Isri Fallon. Miss Fallon was sitting vigil beside the body of Hal Rains, who had previously come to Kate asking for help in getting back to the rift. Hal had tried to go to Artax's magic shop, hoping he could help keep him alive, but spells for you had been seized by Imperial agents, and the wizard was nowhere to be found. Not knowing what else to do, he had returned to Serenity Arms, already in incredible pain and facing a horrible death as the symbiont consumed him from the inside out. Hal accepted the help Ms. Fallon could offer, a syringe full of morphine, enough to give him a quick and painless death. Kate knows there is nothing she can do. Ms. Fallon has been complicit in the death of a mortal. Her fate now is in the hands of the Lothanasi. As David calls in to headquarters, Kate sits down at Hal's bedside, taking his cold, lifeless hand. Whatever she might do to help the nobles and their unwitting passengers, for Hal, it came far too late. Things Unseen, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 10, Continued. Well, Kate, never let it be said that you don't make my unlife interesting. Morgan straightened and stretched her arms over her head, before stripping off her gloves and discarding them. Kate sat in the far corner of the room, 
nursing a cup of coffee and monitoring the stream of aides and technicians moving in and out of the crime scene. And it was a crime scene in the technical sense, even though Kate was fairly sure that no actual crime had been committed here. She looked up at Morgan. What did you find? Severe wasting and dehydration for a start, Morgan said. That much was obvious, of course. One needle mark on the left arm, which matches the gauge of the needle that was on the table. No other significant injuries or signs of restraint. The degree of lividity suggests that he died in this position between two and four hours ago. Rigor mortis is just starting to set in, so I'd put it at about three hours, give or take twenty minutes. Kate sucked in a breath between her teeth. That's an awfully big window. I know, Morgan said, sounding irritated. I'm afraid I can't be any more precise than that. You said he was a cryokinetic, right? Kate nodded. Well, that explains the irregularities in his body temperature. The heart and a few points along the spinal cord were about seven degrees hotter than I would have expected for the time when Miss Fallon said he died. The rest of his body was five to ten degrees colder than the norm. The intestinal tract was so cold that it was practically being refrigerated. That slows down the rate of bacterial decomposition, which is the third major way of determining time of death. Kate grimaced and nodded. Police work was like that sometimes, frustratingly imprecise and confusing as hell. Is there any way to be sure that he was suffering from the same thing that killed Travers? Perhaps, Morgan said. I'll need to take a close look at some tissue samples once I get him back to the morgue. I don't mean to rush you, but the sooner I take him, the better I'll be able to read the evidence. He's all yours, Kate said. She rested her head on her hand, rubbing one knuckle against her eye. I'll pick up your report first thing Monday morning. All right. Morgan put a cool hand on Kate's shoulder. Get some rest, darling. You look like hell. I will. Morgan supervised as the coroner team wrangled Hal into a body bag and then onto a stretcher. Kate sat numbly through most of the process, signing things that were brought to her to sign and otherwise keeping out of everyone's way. At some point she became aware of David kneeling beside her, holding her hand in a gesture of quiet support. She squeezed his hand gratefully, and he squeezed back. The Lightbringers are here he said, after Morgan and her team had left with the body. They've already questioned Dr. Sawyer and Miss Fallon. Agent Starson asked to speak with you personally. Of course he did, Kate sighed. I'm surprised he hasn't barged in here already. David smiled humorlessly. He wanted to speak to Miss Fallon even more. Oh, gods, Kate groaned. Don't worry, David said, squeezing her hand again. I made sure they didn't kill each other, or any innocent bystanders. Thank you, Kate said. Where's Janus now? Just outside. I told him I'd check to see if you were ready for him. Kate looked around at the empty room. As ready as I'm going to be. Go ahead and send him in. David stood and left, and a moment later Janus Starson entered. He stood before her, apparently taking in the room. Kate didn't look up at him. Dr. Sawyer confirms Fallon's version of events, he said at last. He didn't sound angry, or disappointed, or much of anything else. The words came out quiet and even. 
You may wish to investigate whether she acquired the morphine legitimately, but that's no concern of mine. She hasn't done anything to violate the terms of her residency. Kate looked up at him then, and she was sure the surprise she felt was reflected on her features. Janus has a chance to make trouble for Ms. Fallon, and he's not taking it? Why? she asked. Janus met her gaze, his blue eyes glowing faintly in the dim light. His frown deepened. The succubus is an annoyance, nothing more. It would make trouble for you if she were detained. You and I have more important matters to deal with. He sat down across from her and looked her squarely in the face. Fallon says that the young man was being consumed from within by some kind of symbiont. Is she telling the truth? Kate winced. I think so, yeah. From what Hal told me when I saw him? I can't be sure, but I think it wasn't doing it on purpose. It kept him from saying much, but I think it was just trying to get home. Home, Janus repeated. Back to the rift? Kate nodded. He said that Lord Kapler was covering up the accident to protect his monopoly on the pharma trade down there. He wouldn't let them go back because it would mean admitting that he allowed a major security breach. Janus turned his eyes to the corner of the room, narrowing them to glowing blue slits. You realize that if we're dealing with a supernatural entity, this falls back under Lightbringer jurisdiction. I know. But if we expose the symbionts, we lose any chance of their cooperation. Besides which, Count Halloway could just classify it as an imperial security issue and take it out of both our hands. Janus cast a sidelong glance at her. We have a thousand-year-old charter guaranteeing our authority in cases like this. And Halloway has thirty years of political connections and dirt on every man, woman, and androgyne in Metamore. I'm betting that's going to win out, unless the Majestrix herself intervenes. And you know how she hates picking favorites. Janus grunted, conceding the point. You're the one who's interacted with these creatures. How do you judge their intentions? Kate spread her hands. Definitely secretive definitely untrusting. I don't think they're actively hostile, but this isn't their home, and they don't like being stuck here. Or Hal's didn't, anyway. Hard to say what Misty's thought about it. Possession cases are always difficult, Janus said. It's hard to know what comes from the host and what comes from the writer. Did you notice any sudden shifts in personality? No. She wasn't the Misty Holloway we see on TV, but come on, anybody that vapid has to be acting. Janus snorted, but said nothing. She was deeper than I expected, but she was consistent the whole time I was there. Which means there isn't a struggle, Janus said. One of them is completely in control. Or they're cooperating, Kate said. Or maybe it's some kind of group mind thing. Possibly, Janus admitted. He looked down at his hand clenching and unclenching his fist, as if he wished he were holding his sword. I find myself in the unfamiliar position of having to ask for your assistance, Lieutenant. Kate suppressed a surprised laugh. It came out as a cough, but Janus seemed to ignore it. The Lothanasi were created to be diplomats, as well as guardians. People often forget that, since we spend so much time dealing with Daedra and vampires and the like. If these symbionts are something new, and their intentions are peaceful, then our charter commands us to seek an understanding with them. His lip twitched upward at one corner. 
Unfortunately, it seems that you are the only one in a position to talk to them. Kate felt a sudden sinking sensation in the pit of her stomach. Oh boy, you want me to play diplomat? I'm not even close to diplomatic. In case you hadn't noticed, Janus said dryly, it isn't my strongest suit either. Kate opened her mouth, then closed it. Good point, she said. The Lightbringer rose to his feet. We need to know what we're dealing with. Get close to them, Lieutenant. Earn their trust. Try to persuade them to meet with me. If I'm convinced their intentions are peaceful, I can get them safe passage to the rift. All right. Kate rose as well. And just so we're clear, what if I get close to them and I find out their intentions aren't peaceful? Janus reached up and stroked Lemisil's pommel. I'll have your back. I promise. Okay. Kate offered her hand, palm up. Janus put his hand over hers and gripped it briefly, then left. David poked his head in a moment later. No fireworks? I'm impressed. Yeah, he was hardly an asshole at all, Kate said. It sort of surprised me. Only now he wants my help doing diplomacy with the symbionts. She joined David at the door, and together they walked toward her apartment. After a long pause, David said, Agent Starson asked for your help. Yep. With diplomacy? Uh Uh-huh. Pause. You know what they say about the blind leading the blind, don't you? Don't bite me, immortal boy. Yes, ma'am. Malcolm Ardvalos, investment tycoon, philanthropist, third richest person in the Empire, and prince of the Vampire Crime Syndicate in Metamore City, sat in his favorite armchair and lingered over his breakfast. She was a pale-skinned blonde woman, petite, small-breasted, around thirty years old. She had been the star of a children's television show for his entertainment conglomerate, until she'd aged enough to fall out of favor with her target demographic, human girls aged nine to fourteen. Her ratings plummeted, her show was canceled, and her music career faltered after only three albums. Rather than be fired, she accepted an internal job transfer, becoming one of Malcolm's executive assistants. Now she sat in his lap, running her hand adoringly over his chest, as he periodically leaned down to suck at the slowly oozing wounds on her neck. Each time she gasped and moaned, arching her back as he drank from her again. The narcotic venom he'd injected on first biting her couldn't possibly still be in effect, but that hardly mattered. After five years in Malcolm's personal service, she had lost the distinction between pain and pleasure. In between sips, Malcolm read through the packet of reports that had been compiled and delivered to him by one of his subordinates. It was the weekend, so the stock report was rather thin, although a few small-cap firms that he'd been watching had released their first-quarter earnings statements. One of them looked very promising, and he picked up his smartphone and made a note to investigate it further. It might be time to make a purchase there. The monthly status reports from his own business holdings looked generally satisfactory. One couldn't expect miracles in a faltering economy, and there were the usual slumps and setbacks and unforeseen acts of deity that plagued all businesses sooner or later. But their fundamentals were strong, 
The balance sheets were largely solid, and where debts were running higher than he preferred, the bonds remained firmly in investment-grade territory. He spotted a few areas of particular concern, and several more where the business's management deserved to be recognized for exceptional performance. He made a few more notes and continued on. The news reports were fairly unremarkable. Border disputes in Songafield, another bombing in Rukilia by the Kamaran rebels, the International Red Spiral announcing famine relief for Fan Shuar. He was on the fourth page of the news summary before he found something truly urgent. He picked up his phone again and dialed the outreach coordinator for the Church of Eternal Brotherhood. <sighs> From the sound of it, Malcolm had woken her. Who is this? This is Malcolm, he said. What's this I hear about a tzitzi epidemic in western Arambi? Pardon, my lord, the priestess said. Tzitzi flies, you say? My, my field office hasn't reported anything recently. It made the news, Gwyneth, Malcolm said sternly. Do you have any idea how bad it has to be before that happens? Send someone to check on your field office. They are probably dead. So sorry, my lord, Gwyneth said. Malcolm heard the clatter and shuffle of someone getting out of bed and searching for her clothes. Yes, of course. I'll look into it right away. See that you do, Malcolm said. And fix this, Gwyneth. We were assured that these flies were under control. I detest parasites. Spend whatever you have to, but I want this stopped. Right away, my lord, the priestess said. I'll let you know as soon as I have an update. Good. Malcolm out. Malcolm put down the smartphone, took one last long drink from his thrall, then dismissed her with a wave of his hand. She put her robe back on and departed in silence. Irritated, Malcolm tossed the news summary aside. He'd get back to it later, but the very idea of blood-borne diseases made his skin crawl. Repulsive. He turned to the last report, the one that concerned his under-the-table business interests. Malcolm tried to avoid taking too much of a hands-on approach with his criminal empire, or rather the Vampire Queen's criminal empire, which he faithfully administered in this part of the world. It was important to maintain plausible deniability, to make sure that the general public never connected Malcolm, the investment genius, with the shadowy vampire prince. The police knew, of course, but as long as they didn't have the evidence to prosecute him, that wasn't a matter of great concern. Making sure that they never got that evidence was the primary reason he left matters to his subordinates. All the same, there were always some items that required his personal attention. One such matter was stapled to the front of the report, with a handwritten note from his security czar, William Westerson. Interesting ties to your Telvari Rift project. Direct investigation might be advisable. Malcolm raised an eyebrow at this. Westerson rarely ventured an opinion on areas outside his area of expertise. He folded back the note and looked at the file. The report was from a mole in the Metamore City Police Department one who went by the codename Osprey. Osprey had been feeding information to Malcolm and his organization for four or five years, which had gotten progressively more valuable, as he or she had risen up through the ranks of the department. Malcolm's people had expended a lot of time, money, and influence on subverting Osprey, 
As he looked through what the mole had sent him today, Malcolm was convinced that it had been worth the effort. The Ninth Precinct's Detectives Bureau was investigating a pair of deaths, one by magic and the other by suicide. Both had connections to House Kapler, and both had apparently been to the Telvari Rift sometime in the last several weeks. Both bodies showed signs of wasting and mutation, which were more visible in the latter body because the suicide had stopped the progression of the illness. Even more interesting, Count Xavier Halloway had deputized the detectives in charge of the case, giving them the backing of Imperial Intelligence, and then attempted to arrest a wizard that the detectives had questioned in connection to the case. The leading rumor in the precinct house was that the two dead men had come back from the rift with powers so great it had destroyed them. Based on the search warrant requests that Osprey had seen, at least four young nobles had been with him, including Lord Kapler's son. Well, well, well. This is certainly interesting. On the last page of the report, Osprey had requested further instructions. The autopsy records were locked up in the head medical examiner's office. The mole might be able to obtain them, but only at considerable risk of exposure. Osprey wanted to know if the attempt should be made. Picking up his smartphone again, he tapped out a message for Westerson. Osprey was too valuable to risk on an operation like this, but there were plenty of runners who would be more than willing to do this sort of work. With his orders given, Malcolm put aside the reports and went to take a long, relaxing bath. The night was young, and he suddenly found himself in a very good mood. And that's the end of chapter 10. Now that Malcolm knows about the incident at the Rift, what will he do about it? Which runners will he employ to find out more? And how will Kate and Janus gain the symbiont's trust? The mystery continues next week. I'm recording this episode early this week. My new employer has given us a long weekend for Easter, so Mel and I are going up to Michigan to see my family. As a result, I don't have a weekly writing report or a feedback section this week. Come back next time and I'll let you know how things are going. If you'd like to leave feedback about the show, you can send your thoughts in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900 then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow fans, join the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. That's our show for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. 
The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.